This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Welcome back. Good morning. You are with Marie here on Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture, and I have a new man in my life. Very exciting. With Marty away over in the West Island in Australia, joining me this morning for Media Matters from Politics Explained is Tane Webster. Good morning, Tane. Good morning, Marie. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. It will be nice to actually have a youthful point of view, which will be very exciting. I have to say, listeners, Tane is vastly more prepared than I am, so this is going to be great. We have dived in and had a look at everything, but first, Politics Explained, which is something that you do over on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Let the listeners who haven't heard that a little more about what that is. Sure. Yeah, thanks, Marie. So once a week, I record a segment with Rodney on called Politics Explained, Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit. And what we aim to do in about 15 to 20 minutes each week is cover off some interesting questions about how the political system works in New Zealand, but also covering international political issues and taking questions and comments from our listener base. So if you have a question specifically that you'd like us to cover, uh, myself and Rodney, just send in an email or send a text into 2057. Yeah, and the email, of course, is inbox at realitycheck.radio. Oh, let's start with politics, because let's face it, it's uh, it has been a big week in politics. Obviously, we're into the campaign launch time, so everybody is having conferences, launching their policies, getting the positioning set up for the election in October. But more than that, the wagons were starting to circle now for the Labour Party. I, I hope people are taking Chris Hipkins' blood pressure because it must be through the roof. You have what happened in Auckland on Thursday, the shooting, ankle bracelet, all the questions that have gone along with that. Opinion piece on all of that has been pretty much dominated the weekend papers. My personal favourite was Andrea Vance. Dear old Andrea, will the Auckland shooting be the moment Labour lost control of the election campaign? And then Kitty happened. What an embarrassment. Oh, man. I would be I'd be running for cover if I was chippy. You know what amazes me, though, Tane, is the last poll was, what, 30% Labour were polling it? It just amazes me that there are still 30% of people that believe that this is as good as it gets. Well, the thing with Labour is that obviously a lot of their voters are switching to the Greens because the wokeness gets more and more extreme and Labour tries to stay closer to the centre. Yeah, I guess they're just not they're just not tuned into the into the news or they're in denial, maybe. Mm, mm. And the Greens, obviously, they had their launch, I know, over the weekend as well. And from what I hear, it was, I mean, let's face it, all these launches, regardless of what the party is, is you're preaching to the converted, right? You're pe- preaching to the party faithful. The Greens are certainly picking up what I would call the activist vote. And then the Māori Party, Te Pāti Māori, I think, are also picking up some of those Māori voters who flipped over to Labour in the COVID election and then are deciding that they want issues more grounded, particularly those who are, again, in the more activist space. But there is, I think, a lot of Labour voters, well, voters who voted Labour in the last election, who must be sitting back and looking at all of this and feeling pretty homeless. And again, the number that I've seen 
And it's the number that no one talks about in the polls is the don't know number. That that don't know number is the biggest I've seen it in a long time. And that don't know number is the number that's going to win or lose this election. Totally. Maybe we should go through that list that you had of the various Labour stuff ups over the past few years. So, of course, yeah, I am going to go through this list because this is the thing that that I find incredible, right, is accountability in action. So there are a lot of commentators, including Vance, debaters raging around whether or not the perpetrator in Auckland last week should have been in prison based on the rap sheet that they had, whose fault is it? Is it the judges? Are the judges influenced by the government of the time? All of that was swirling around. Ellen is obviously big justice minister, would have been feeling that, and she obviously decided. I mean, Dry July was obviously not on her list of things to do this month, Tane. No. no. She, there was that article, was it from the, the year before or, or 2021? Which 2021, something. yeah. Yeah, so 2021 was the year that she had uh, treatment for cervical cancer, and I know she was a big promoter of Dry July that month. She, of course, decides to have one or two too many, pop herself off into the, uh, into the company car and uh, bash into a back of a ute. What I find really incredible about this is – At this stage, they're not looking at charging her for the DIC. She was obviously above the legal limit for driving, but they are looking at it for the, I think, reckless driving and um, resisting arrest, whatever the official title for that is. Not good options. Resisting arrest is what sticks out the most to me. I mean, you know, create a story, excuses of why the, the drunk driving happened, but resisting arrest, just clown world. And the difficulty too, I think, too, for those officers. I mean, imagine being the poor old officers that have to arrest a minister of the crown. I can't remember the last time a minister of the crown was arrested for anything in this country. So you've got that entire situation. But since this government has been in office, it is a laundry list of dropkicks and disasters and scandals that at any other time you would have a media baying for blood any one of those scandals would have put a significant dent into the popularity of the government at the time. And these are just the ones that I can remember. If you're out there and I've missed someone off the laundry list, 2057, send it in. Let me know who I've missed out. I was kind of, you know, thinking back in the old memory banks. Well, I mean, who can forget David Clark? David, I, you know, it's okay for me, but not for thee. I'll break the lockdown rules. David Clark in Dunedin. And then he also had another little scandal after that. But I mean, he plonker. So we've got David Clark. And then, of course, there was Mecca Fightery, who originally had the police job. And then she lost the police job because it turns out that she's a bully at work and they didn't like that very much. So Crown Services had to shift Mecca sideways and out of cabinet she went. Now, of course, she's jumped Walker and she's gone across to Tapatamari. Who can forget Michael Wood? Because Michael Wood has memory issues with the shears and Mr. River of Filth. Mr. River of Filth. I don't think anybody in this sphere, you know, I think a lot of our listeners are quite happy about uh, Mr. Wood getting the wood. So he's gone. My electorate, Stewie Nash. Wow. You know, Stewie Stewie spent most of his time with his feet in his mouth. Blunder after blunder after blunder. Stewie is gone. Then you've got Gareth Sharma, more bullying. And he, in this, this time, from the other direction. And big call from him. But what did it do for him? Well, he's gone didn't win a by-election. He pops up now as a writer and a columnist um, on the papers from time to time. I see him pop up and stuff. Chris Farfoy. 
Chris Farfoy. Well, remember, Chris Farfoy jumped before he was pushed because of the immigration scandal doing favours for his mates. That's never a good look, not good optics. And who can forget Claire Curran having that secret little meeting with Carol Hirschfeld, which ended her job at RNZ, and no one even really got to the bottom of what they were meeting about. But Claire didn't last too long. She disappeared in 2020, and then there was Ian Lee's Galloway, who liked to play away from home, was quite busy. Uh, so he was he was gone. And uh, Louisa Wall, now she left, but she had a stinging valedictory speech in Parliament. There was obviously bad blood between her and Jacinda because on paper, Louisa Wall should have been, I would have thought, right in Labour heartland. She was there in terms of she ticked the Māori box, she ticked the queer box, she ticked the sports star box. She had everything going for her and there was bad blood there. And I don't know, I should ask Cam because I'm sure Cam knows, but she was another one that disappeared. So she didn't disgrace herself with it, but there was certainly unhappiness within the Labour caucus. I mean, this is like the world's most dysfunctional family. You've um, you've left one off. It's sort of a trick question, but... Oh, who's I missed out? Leaving, because she had no energy left in the tank. No gas in the tank, Tano. You know what I think it is? I don't think she could afford it. What is it now in Auckland? Knocking $3 a litre? She couldn't afford the gas in the tank, like most of us. How on earth now any voters can seriously consider that this mob and this is even before we get on to the spending this is before we get on to the this is before we get on to grants print and spend 193 billion dollars is the current new zealand deficit 193 billion but that's okay grant reckons you know oh no we've got money we've got money in the covid fund the covid funds that's borrowed and part of that 193 billion grant that covid fund how much is it per person? I did pick this up from another news outlet this morning. So they reckon $151,000 is the average debt per Kiwi. So whether or not that's against it, 193, but I think that's the actual, the amount of personal debt that New Zealanders have currently is an average of over $150,000, which is a lot of money. The reality of it is, is that $193 billion? That's my kids that are paying that back and their kids that are paying that back. But that's okay because, you know, the tax of envy, which is now out there. Tane, have you decided who you're voting for? You don't have to tell me who it is, but have you? are you in the I know what I'm doing camp? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. Oh, you're doing better I mean, than me. I would never say yes right now because of the, there's two months or plus, there's 83 days. Until yeah, it's a lot of water to go under days. the bridge. I've never been this undecided this far out from an election. I've been at this since I was 18, don't I? It's, it's quite unsettling. Yeah, I'm still undecided. I think I'm definitely there with my candidate vote because, I mean, let's face it, we all get two votes. You've got to remember that, and you're allowed to make them different, which is, you know, the whole point of MMP. I think I'm having to reconcile that I'm going to go with heart and head, candidate with my heart and party vote with my head. Interestingly enough, John Tamahere and Te Pāti Māori are actually trying to encourage their members to vote Te Pāti Māori for the candidate and Labour for the party vote, which for a minor party is quite interesting that they're doing that. I mean, if I were Tamahere, I'd be knowing full well that they've got almost two seats in the bag with Wairiki and Ikaraua 
fairly likely that those two, you know, Mecca will swing that and Rawari will hold it, that he's not just trying to pack in more MPs on the party vote for Te Pāti Māori and, and encouraging people to go Labour. I I don't get that. Yes, unless is it not, are they sort of not shoo-in for the, some of the Māori seats and then therefore they want to ensure Labour gets the total victory so so they can go in coalition and rule? Yeah, but the years. coalition is, is based on the fact that they still need to win a seat or they get over the 5% threshold. Now, their greatest chance, as we know, because most of the Māori electorates are around, what was those, on average around 35,000 voters. How many turn out? I don't know, probably only a fraction. I think they have the lowest voter turnout of the electorates. So your chances of winning a seat, you've got to convince a smaller number of people in each of those Māori seats in order to win. But I just find, and he's obviously concentrating on that. He's concentrating on making sure that um, Rawari gets over the line, Mecca gets over the line. Debbie's out your way, isn't she? Isn't she? Whole, isn't she? Uh, yeah, so- she's she's South Taranaki, I think. So yeah. So I, I don't know whether how what, who the incumbent Māori MP is out in your direction. It's yeah. He's he. That's I just find that really fascinating. I would have just gone go for golden and try and get both ticks. But obviously that he's got a plan, obviously, John. Uh, so that's what's going on there. And then there's a lot going on in Northland. Uh, did you catch the crunch with Cam on Thursday? Yeah, bits of it. Well, the thing is, it was disappointing, though, that we were unable to get the National Enact people on. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So if you haven't, if you are listening out there and you're wondering what I'm talking about, Cam Slater now has a new show on Thursdays. It's called The Crunch with Cam Slater. It is now up on replays. It's uh, 4 4 p.m. live on a Thursday. Cam, of course, is literally born into politics. It is in his blood. He has got a black book that's like an encyclopedia. He knows everybody. He deals with everybody. And he did a show on Thursday that was an election special for the Northland electorate and looking at the candidates up there because from that electorate is one that is going to be interesting for people. It is, uh, you have Willow Jean Prime, who's the incumbent, uh, but she's, uh, where is Willow Jean? is one of the catch cries up there because she doesn't spend, I think spends a bit more time in Wellington than she does up north. Uh, Shane Jones is contesting that. Of course, Matt King from Democracy New Zealand. Mark Cameron, who is already a sitting MP on the list for ACT, is in the electorate. I can't remember the national candidate. Apologies for that. And there's, I think, also a green candidate up there as well. And Cam had reached out to the national candidate and the ACT candidate. And initially they were like, yep, we're all there. And then they were like, nope, no, we're not. <laughs> and so he spoke yeah. to Shane Jones and and to Matt King. So that was, you know, that was something. It's a real worry that you've got these three from the sort of centre-right, Matt, the national guy, and Shane, and they could end up uh, splitting the, the centre-right votes and you have the, the Labour person win. I know, I know. And the, I've been voicing this now for months. And the reason I've been voicing this for months is we saw this happen in Napier. We saw this happen in 2014. So that happened here. It's how we got Stuart Nash, basically. 
a split vote. National should have done a deal with with the Conservative Party. And we had a very, very strong local candidate here who was well-respected. He was the head of the Sensible Sentencing Trust. It was the time of the home invasions. So it's all ram raids currently. 2010 to 2014, there were a number of very high-profile home invasions. The Sensible Sentencing Trust went out there and they were really trying to make sure that these violent criminals were not being let off with these sort of butterball-type sentences. Now, it does fast-forward to nearly 10 years. Not a lot's changed since, but we ended up, that's what happened there. The votes were split between the Conservative Party candidate and the National Party candidate, who both polled together combined 50% higher than Stuart Nash, but they handed the election to Stuart Nash. Northland is going to be a battleground. There is going to be a poll, and that poll is going to be released tomorrow. So if you're really interested in what's going on, you need to listen to The Crunch with Cam Slater live four o'clock tomorrow, because that those poll results will be in. And especially if you're in that electorate, it will give you a very, very clear idea of what your fellow constituents are thinking of. People need to start being clever because th- this election could be won or lost on Northland. Now, what else have you seen in terms, I know Winston had his launch uh, a couple of days ago. Have you caught up with some of that? Yeah, I did actually. I tuned in to a part of most of his his speech on, uh, I think it was 2 p.m., started at 2 p.m. on Sunday. And uh, yeah, it sounded good. Um, as, you know, any politician makes their speech sound, but I, I like to hear the points he's making and I like the slogan, taking back New Zealand. And I like the fact that there is an anti-mandate doctor. I mean, I hate that term, anti-mandate. You know, they equal choice for for working conditions. But the doctor, Dr. Michelle Warren, is a candidate for New Zealand First. I see you also rolled out Casey Costello. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. that's what I was going to say next. She's great. For New Zealand First, apart from Shane Jones, the with that the electorate they're going for is not really what what matters. It's, no, it's, he's um, he's aiming for that five percent definitely, isn't he? Yeah, but yeah, Casey Costello. If, if the listeners aren't familiar, she uh, obviously in order to be a candidate, she just resigned as the spokesperson for Hobson's Pledge, which is a, a really really good. I don't know how you describe it. A, a, a lobby slash think tank that advocates for equal rights for New Zealanders, and they've been doing that uh, tremendous job for, for a number of years. So um, she comes to the the election campaign with a lot of experience and uh, knowledge on, on a really key issue, which everyone's talking about, which is co-governance. So mm. a big win for, for New Zealand First to get her on board as a candidate. And also to crime and law and order, because she's an, she's ex-police, if I remember yeah, rightly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, right. so she's, she's also a, a, a former candidate for New Conservative. So I think that that does play in as a factor in some people's decision because they mm. know her from from that. Yeah, and and she's also had some experience in campaigning uh, as well. So I think he announced was it uh, four or five new candidates at the event. So that's you know he's starting to pull his pull his people together, which is really really good. Um, what the thing that stood out for me was, in terms of policy, was the dropping the GST off fresh fruit and veggies. Yeah, I'm no economist, but not enough 
attention is on the cost of living and healthy eating, him putting that forward is a, is a good step in the right direction there. Mm. But the thing that I found really, really interesting is the spokesman for Deloitte's, who was on the tax working group, put out a statement after hearing that, dismissing it out of hand that it was something that really shouldn't happen. And this is, and he said, because we discussed it in the tax working group and it was because they dismissed it out of hand because GST, as we all know, is the one tax that is completely equal. Every single person is the most equitable tax that we have in this country. Everybody is treated with GST the same way doesn't matter what colour we are, where we were born, what we earn, where we live, what we don't earn, what we don't do. doesn't matter. GST, 15% on everything. Everything that we buy has got 15% or everything we use, 15% GST and vice versa. So it's completely a level playing field for everybody. The tax working group, when Jacinda pulled that together back in the day, uh, they dismissed that on the basis that rich people could afford more expensive food. So therefore, by dropping the 15% tax on fresh fruit and vegetables, it would be the wealthy that would benefit the most because they could afford to eat more expensive food. That policy, whilst it's not going to set the world on fire, it's practical and other countries do it. It's relatively easy to implement. But the thing is, it, all these things worth pointing out that it's just a policy, mm. proposed policy, and A, they have to get in first for it to even be a possibility, and then they have to negotiate for it. So, mm. To me, that would be one, though, I could see him wanting to negotiate quite heavily on. And you'd yes. have a lot of support from the public. Yeah, yeah. He's very, if he, if he does anything, he's quite good at picking those issues to actually get across the line to achieve something. Um, that's sort of been his track record. So in the themes of the paper, one of the things that I definitely noticed is across the weekend is he appeared in every single one. All the little media lovies out there, I think they've all got the jitters. They've all got the jitters at the thought that actually the old bastard might pull this off. Yes. And I think they're all a little bit scared. Now, whether he does or doesn't, we don't know. But they're certainly, to be giving him the column inches that they're giving him, says to me that he's on target of what he's doing. They're trying to sort of slap on he's running on the, the freedom, anti-vax, anti-mandate, disillusioned crew. Whereas, to be fair, he has spoken to Cam. He's running to me on a lot of other policies other than that. He's running on the traditional nationalistic policies that he's always run on. But he's the only candidate who isn't, doesn't have ostrich syndrome and is at least prepared to say, well, we'll take another look at that and why are these mandates there? These are ridiculous. It's a very easy issue to campaign on for whatever reason. Other mm. parties, I mean, I mean, in terms of the National Enact, because they were in opposition while this all rolled out, the COVID response, but they're not really using it to their advantage um, like Winston is. No, no. David tried to roll things back and claim that he wasn't pro-mandate and wanted to put together, uh, it, well, he did advocate using rat tests. Yes, he did advocate using rat tests, but he still voted in the House for those mandates to go through. So you can say that all you want, but he voted for it. If he didn't vote for it and said, look, no, I think people need to have that choice and there's other options, 
then I'd have a bit more respect from him. But he's, you know, it's like that scorpion and a frog analogy. That boy's tail has gotten quite big. The other issue is some made some poor decisions on, like they put out that article, uh, Vax Bucks, $250 incentive for, for people getting oh, tax reduction. Right? Mm. Do you remember that? Act? Yeah, I do. Um, and for their voter base and their prospective voter base, that was a completely low return thing to put out. You're not going to excite anyone over that. You, you, it's just sort of reinforcing government messaging, which you're supposed to be against, and alienating uh, a portion of the people who, who in the past voted out. Yeah, they, they made some bad decisions uh, in the last couple of years, and we're seeing now the, the kind of gap that Winston is, is trying to fill for people who care about their freedom and were mm. dissatisfied with all the other parties. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I will be waiting with bated breath for that Northland poll tomorrow from Cam because Matt King is putting a lot of eggs in that Northland basket. Totally. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. It's huge kind amount of the of only way for, for, for that party, I, I think. Yeah. And in terms of other freedom voters, of course, and I'm trying to, I'm working with um, Bex to the, in the Māori seats. Uh, I know Hana Tamaki is looking, I think, at uh, standing in Tamaki Mikaro and uh, was Donna Pokeri Phillips was, I think, I can't quite remember whether it was Northland um, or the Hauraki, but she's also looking at standing in a Māori seat as well, which is actually really clever, as I said, yeah, because yeah, a number I'm, of constituents, yeah, because a number of the constituents in there is a lot, lot smaller. You've got a lot less people to sway. And also, I think the one set of voices, Marty and I talk this talk about this a lot, the one set of voices that have been forgotten during this election campaign are the conservative Māori voices because those are people that tend to be very quiet and reserved. They don't necessarily put them put themselves out there in the forefront. They will vote very, very conservatively. And I know that Karina Shields is doing a lot of work to sort of try and encourage those voters actually off the Māori role. Uh, and of course, now the time to do that has passed. But she was trying to convince them off the Māori role to actually vote uh, on the general role because then they have more choice. But if you were a conservative Māori voter and you were somebody that believed in the values that you had within your own hapu, you didn't like the activism of Te Tiriti or Waitangi, or if you were a follower of Hei Whakaputenga, because let's face it, that group and the Te Tiriti group, they're not exactly simpatico on all of these issues. No. Or you're someone who has seen this Māori elite, the self-entitled, self-imposed rangatira of both Te Pāti Māori and the Māori caucus and the Labour Party, you know, Hana and, and Donna could actually capture a lot of those votes because National isn't necessarily, I don't, I don't know, I think they could be running a candidate, but they certainly are not trying to appeal to them. It's great anytime people think outside the box in this political space. Uh, that's something that... Rodney and I have discussed on, on Politics Explained. I think um, there's an episode called How Many Members Makes a Party, if people want to hear about another out-of-the-box way of looking at, at this election and future elections, because the repeat approach, you know, I was around in 2020. Before then, uh, this repeat approach of, of minor parties going for the 5%, it's, um, I'm not saying it'll never happen. But well, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. 
I don't think there has ever been a minor party that have gotten 5%, gotten over on the threshold. They've always had an electorate seat. Marty and I talked about the Greens. He thought uh, the Greens had gotten over the 5%, and they had back in the day with Jeanette Fitzsimons, but she did win Coromandel too. So that sort of gave them the double whammy in. No, I think Rodney will know this, but I'm pretty I'm pretty certain no one's actually reached over the 5%. So it will be interesting to see. You were someone that was with part of politics explained. What happens for those that don't aren't aware? So 7.8% of the votes at the last election fell to parties outside of the tent. What happens to those 7.8% of those votes, Tane? Yeah, this is a, a question lots of people put up. The votes are... One way of describing the mechanism is that they're divvied up according to the ratio of how all the other votes have been divvied out. So the party that's got 40% of the total vote gets 40% of those leftover you know, votes that can't count. Some people get quite outraged about that. I, I don't, I just see it as like the normal mathematical thing that would happen. In essence, the, I guess the, the key thing is you, the votes didn't end up counting. And then some people put up a different argument. They say, you know, and, and I sometimes think this way as well you know you're making a point you're making a stand so people some people do that you know that they want to have a, a totally clean conscience they might say you know and they're wanting to um back their guy or their gal uh, their party and that's a that's a legitimate approach as well and then some other people think that maybe they need to be strategic mm. so, to each their own yeah well look what happened in 2020 and how that worked out particularly in those rural electorates mm. Before we head off shore, I want to just talk about one other thing here, domestic, that you brought up was with uh, Groundswell, with Countdown. They are calling, Bryce McKenzie is calling for a boycott of Countdown. So So what's the story with that? Yeah, Countdown's, I'm just reading the article here, basically that it's it's to do with climate change. The head of sustainability had invited all, the company had invited all its suppliers, so farmers, to join its thesis program which requires suppliers to measure and report their emissions so because they're basing it all around you know the farmers emissions rather than the supply chain and and you know we and talk about the the actual crux of of climate change and how concerned we should be or whether or not we should even be concerned that's a greenwash discussion make sure you tune into jasper and don's uh, episodes to hear the the truth about climate change but in response to that groundswell co-founder bryce mckenzie uh, they've they've called for a boycott. It's being shared around on social media. I'm not sure how hard it will hit them, but I applaud this change of focus because politics is not just once a year, once every three years voting. Politics is also how you spend your money. You can vote with your wallet, vote with your feet, and who you spend time with and how you spend time with them. And yeah, I'm, I'm I applaud them for for calling for the boycott. Mm. A couple of things about this that I find really intriguing is that Countdown feel they need to have a head of sustainability. I mean, that falls under the Matthias Desmet bullshit jobs title, I would have thought. Just saying. I think it can get a lot worse than that. Really? Good girl. There's there's people in corporate jobs that are head of diversity and inclusivity and all Uh, sorts of things. See, I've been self-employed far too long, Tane. Yes, they're wanting supporters to boycott the supermarket chain, which has 194 stores in New Zealand from Monday the 24th of July until Sunday the 7th of August. That's actually quite clever too. This is actually another really clever thing that they've done. They're doing it in a snapshot. And by doing it in a snapshot and saying to people, get behind this, do it this week, and then if things go back to normal the following week, it then actually could potentially 
because these supermarkets track everything. They they track every uh, purchase. They will have these numbers absolutely down. By doing that, it will actually give them a key to say, hey, your consumers aren't happy here and you need to start listening to your consumers, which I think is really important. It doesn't surprise me that Countdown have done this. Do you understand how these supermarket chains work, Tane? Not as well as you, so please <laughs> The reality of it is, is in this country, when it comes to supermarkets, we have a duopoly. We have progressive enterprises, which is Countdown Supermarkets on one side, and which is Australian, Australian owned, by the way. So they're on one side of the fence. So all the stores, and they cover uh, Countdown, which is now going to be rebranded back to Woolworths, uh, Fresh Choice, Super Value is part of that group, all fall under that umbrella with uh, progressive enterprises. Then on the other side of the fence, you have Foodstuffs. Now, Foodstuffs uh, runs a different model. Foodstuffs has uh, three regions. They've got Northern, Central, and Southern. And Foodstuffs are all owner-operators. So they're more the cooperative model. So within Foodstuffs, they start with four squares at the bottom, and you move four squares, New World, uh, Pack and Save, sort of in in terms of size. Being owner-operated, each store has much more autonomy than a countdown store does, for example. All of them, if you're a supplier that comes to these stores and having worked for companies that have dealt with them, both of them, they literally hold suppliers to ransom. I can see why the Groundswell team have had enough and they're fed up because they hold them to ransom over price. They hold them to ransom over over quality. They hold them to ransom over delivery. They have a thing called co-op. And what co-op is, and this is particularly in progressive, you see this in progressive especially, is if you want to go in with a promotion and you've got a lot of this product, you want to put this product on promotion, they'll say, well, how much co-op are you putting in? And what co-op stands for is how much money are you going to give the supermarket to allow them discount your product, but also display your product in, say, for example, a prominent position in the supermarket. So whether it be an aisle end or in the middle of the store, will it go in their catalogue for that week? Will it appear in their social media advertising? So if you're a farmer and you um, you pull it all together and you're an apple grower, for argument's sake, and your apple, they go in as a cooperative and they say, right, we've got all of these New Zealand rose apples, we want to put these apples in, we're going to give you this great price for these apples, knowing full well that if that price is really sharp, that the grower's getting even less because the price has dropped, then they'll turn around and say, well, uh, yeah, you can do that plus $50,000 worth of co-op. And I can tell you right now, nine times out of 10, when you go in and do that, and I used to do this for shaved ham all the time, you'd go in there and do that, and it is essentially a loss leader. So you will supply your product into Countdown Supermarkets. That ham that you're buying or those apples or the booze, booze is a big one. Um, big one, yeah. Often when you see it on special, the supplier, whoever's supplying that is not making any money on it whatsoever. Or they do it, they're just doing it for the turnover and the positioning and getting the branding out there. Yeah, the uh, I'm not against supermarkets, but with the things we know that are on the horizon, with the threat of mRNA in food and livestock, um, with ESG, with digitalization and cashlessness. We and the we as the consumers, communities and the farmers, the creators, 
are all much more empowered on a on other models other than supplying to massive supermarkets we we there is going to be a shift in um there are it's already happening that shift is taking place overseas and it will happen here as well uh, with with opportunities coming up and actually there's going to be someone a uh, sort of permaculture type expert who's going to come on I believe next week to to talk about something similar to that so so I'll just pique your interest there I won't, won't say who it yeah, is yeah so it will be interesting so I I actually wholeheartedly support the groundswell guys you know they I know that they get a pretty rough stick in the media uh, they're, they're almost lumped in with the likes of us but what I love about them is that they there's a lot of support there's a lot of support for farmers out there. Farmers have been given the rough end of the stick for a long, long time now. And if you're able to support the boycott, I think go to it. Uh, absolutely. I know I certainly will. Well, buying habits change. And I think you're right, Tane. Buying habits will change. And I think buying habits need to change. And especially in a cost of living crisis, if what Countdown is worried about is stinging farmers for emissions, when really what we sh- they should be doing is making sure that the farmers are supported and product can be getting out there. The one thing I can tell you with these supermarkets, they are not losing margin. They are making bank on everything that they're doing. Voting with the dollar, we've seen what's happened in the United States with Bud Light and other consumer boycotts here. Look, I know we're a lot smaller, but when it comes to a duopoly, uh, you know, if everybody decides for this week that they're going to pop to a foodstuff store, remember, locally owned and operated, just saying, locally owned and operated, then, you know, that could send a message. Now, let's pop offshore, shall we? One of the articles I picked up for this for this show is uh, it's one from the... Washington Examiner, and the title is, it's quite funny, Kentucky requires nurses to take training on structural racism and white-splaining. I hadn't heard that word before. I presume it's like um, mansplaining, so white-explaining. The Board of Nursing for Kentucky has mandated nurses to take an implicit bias course to recognize the history of racism in healthcare and threaten discipline for failure to do so. So when you hear about woke things in New Zealand, and you think, gosh, New Zealand's messed up. We're not alone. It's happening all over the Western world. And I think that's something worth pointing out because I know quite a few people who like to focus on the bad things happening in New Zealand, thinking that everything's green overseas and it's not. No, and especially with the racial divides in the United States. They're vastly more polarised on all of these issues across there. In this article, it cites a career nurse of 40 years' experience and the training presented by the Kentucky Nurses Association Board of Directors Treasurer, um, Erica Brandford and Delanor Manson told nurses that, that best intentions will not solve implicit bias in healthcare. In order to lead a meaningful change, any exploration of implicit bias must be situated as part of a larger conversation on racism and bias. And the opening slide of the presentation states... Another slide showed a large picture of the Ku Klux Klan members burning a cross. This is straight out of Robin D'Angelo White Fragility. I mean, it's amazing. I kind of thought that they'd knocked some of this stuff out, but obviously not. It's still... Um, what's, that, what's that book? Could you just quick... What's that White book? Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, which is basically the woke white woman's Bible to white knighting. So they read this and then they feel all empowered to go on and talk about explicit bias and and save people from their whiteness. 
I think it came out in about 2017, 2018. I actually read it, Tane, and it took me about six hours to read, and it's six hours of my life I'll never get back. And most no, of it... but we need some people to sacrifice time to I become think, experts in well, what they're I, doing. Well, I've done it, and most of it was Ms. D'Angelo was sort of trying to externalise the fact that she's actually a racist and she's actually having to get over her big bad self. So to get over a big bad self as a racist, she's now making everybody else's life miserable and taking on, she's gone and pulled together the theories of postmodernism and neo-Marxism and turned it into this sort of Franken baby of theory. And it's, yeah, it is something to behold for sure. And she now gets massive money going around on speaking tours, telling people about their implicit bias and an argumentation. This crazy world that we live in, right? Well, I'm just looking at the time. We've been chatting away for quite some time. I've got a new feature coming up very, very shortly. Don't disappear. It is the Woke News of the Week. And uh, on the theme of implicit bias and racism, I've got some news for you. Thank you very much, Tane. Again, remind everybody when they can catch Politics Explained. Politics Explained, you can go to realitycheck.radio and under replays, Rodney Hyde Real Talk. And in that section, you'll be able to find the replays of my recordings with Rodney discussing various political theories, strategies, and learnings from New Zealand and around the world. Excellent. And if you want to know about Māori electorates, you can jump on my recording with Tane, which is there as well. So thank you so much for um, sitting in Marty's hot seat and keeping me company this morning. Usually, Marty, I get Marty to do most of the talking, so everyone will be so sick of me by now. But it's been so good to no, have you on, Tane. As I said, don't disappear. We've got the woke news of the week still coming up here on Reality Check Radio, and you are with Counterculture. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio.